Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 174 being recorded on Wednesday, May 15th. 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Jason, one of our favorite topics on the podcast is the megatrend that has several names that, that we talk about. Um, I think our favorite is DNVB because it just rolls off the tongue, but there's brands going direct, direct to consumer. Uh, and uh, I'm sure there's others in there. And tonight, we're excited to have on the show one of the top experts on this trend, um, both from uh, being in the trenches, but also at a strategic level. Uh, we have with us tonight, Webb Smith. Webb is founder of 2PM, a DTC e-commerce newsletter that is published at, wait for it, 2PM every day. Uh, full disclosure for listeners, both Jason and I uh, are fans of the letter and of the executive membership and, and enjoy reading that. Um, and prior to starting 2PM, Webb uh, was a senior executive, investor, founder in many well-known DTC brands. And he also, as uh, part of uh, his whole portfolio of what he does, he advises and invests in lots of these brands as well. Uh, welcome to the show, Webb. It's my honor, guys. Thanks for having me. Cool. So one uh, one kind of fun topical thing. Uh, I just saw that the uh, luggage company. I don't. I think they call themselves a travel lifestyle company, but I think of them as luggage company. Away uh, just raised over a hundred million dollars, and I think they're in the the definitely the unicorn club, which is a valuation over a billion dollars. But I think they're closing in on a couple billion dollars. Um, and I hear you have a fun uh, away story. Oh yes. Well, you know, I, I know that. Uh... At least one of you guys is a fan of Jen Rubio, and and uh, she's certainly on my good side. Long story short, I think it was maybe four four weeks ago, four or five weeks ago, and I was joking about wanting to go to the Masters. I mean, everyone wants to go to the Masters, but but I, you know, I I joked that I would want to go one day, but I also want to be able to afford my kids' college education. So then she responds. She says, "You know, do you want my tickets?" And I'm like, "Well, yes, uh, yes, of course I want your tickets." She's like, "Can you know? Can you get to Georgia?" I, I confirmed that I can get to Georgia. And uh, in the next three hours, uh, a, a really interesting sequence of events happens. Uh, she responds that she has one ticket. It's a very special ticket. But in that time, I told my dad, who's always wanted to go, that I was going to take him. So I ended up buying two regular price tickets. Regular price tickets for the Masters for Sunday with Tiger in contention cost $2,400 per. Okay. So I, I buy these tickets, which is a huge sacrifice. And long story short, um, uh, I, my dad flies to uh, Atlanta with me. We go to Augusta. And I end up setting those tickets aside altogether because Jen got me two of those special tickets. So I can honestly say that that kind gesture is responsible for probably a top 15 or 20 day of my life with my dad. It was a bucket list item for him, and we got to see, you know, the Masters in style. Yeah, and Tiger, I don't. It sounds like you're a Tiger fan. It was really awesome to watch him kind of make a comeback. I thought that was a pretty interesting moment. On that day, every everybody was a Tiger fan. It was really spectacular to watch. Yeah, awesome. Um, I'm we, from Aiken, South Carolina, and uh, the guy that runs all the concessions at the Masters lives in my neighborhood. I don't live there anymore, but my old neighborhood. And uh, we all would get jobs at the concessions, so I worked at the Masters for six years. How many uh, pimento cheese sandwiches have you sold? Uh, a lot. The uh, the what everyone worked their way up to the beer tent because uh, back then beers were like a dollar seventy five or something like that. And then uh, all these quarters would fly. Well, first of all, you got tips, which was exciting. Uh, and then second of all, uh, there were so many quarters flying around that they, you could make an extra like five or 10 bucks from fallen quarters. Interesting. <laughs> I, I just learned a, an awesome fact about Scott. I didn't know that. Cool. <laughs> um, but side note, were you able to, to liquidate the, the general admission tickets you invested in? 
So I did not. And that was very painful. That was a lot of money for me. Uh, but again, it was my dad and he's you know 63 and he's always wanted to go. So I did it. Um, at the end of the day, I still ended up net positive. I got two of the most special tickets in all of sports. And I got to watch Tiger in contention on Sunday. And obviously he ended up winning for the first time in 14 years. So I've gotten over that expense for the sake of how wonderful of a time it was with my dad. But if it happens again, don't forget your favorite podcasters. It's I, will not, I will never forget you guys. Uh, yeah, that is awesome. And I'm pretty confident on your hundredth birthday. One of the things you're not going to regret is, is uh, your investment in going to that masters. I, I, I agree with you. Uh, I'm at peace with it. Good, good deal. Um, so speaking of things you might regret, uh, one of the things we always like to do on the show uh, is is get kind of the uh, brief uh, background bio of all our guests so that listeners can kind of understand sort of how you came into your your current role in knowledge base. Can you can you kind of walk us through your high level career progression? Sure. Um, long story short, I would say that I got my my first big boy job my real beginning in e-commerce back at Rogue. Uh, Rogue is a sporting goods and equipment company, uh, manufacturer and direct-to-consumer brand here in Columbus, Ohio. Um, I was responsible for auditing and uh, running paid search and so on and so forth um, for a time there. I learned a lot about, you know, frankly, high-tension advertising. Um, we The company was still growing at that time. It was it was maybe 100 people. I think now it's 600 people. Um, it's one of the most uh, underrated e-commerce companies in America, in my opinion. Uh, and I think it's expertly run. So I learned a lot from that group. Shortly after that, I uh, co-founded Mizzen in Maine with Kevin Lavelle. Uh, that company is doing really, really well now. It consolidated in Dallas and the team is strong. Um, Kevin just stepped down as CEO himself. And uh, uh, a gentleman from Stitch Fix is now running the show. Um, from there, I sort of switched gears and went on the publishing side. So I was at Uncrate for a little bit. Uh, I was the director of Gear Patrol, director of e-commerce for Gear Patrol, where I essentially built uh, an e-commerce platform on top of the existing publishing structure. So that was my first uh, real, well, those two experiences were my first real um a content commerce or what I like to call linear commerce operations, understanding how audience and, uh, and supply meet in the middle. Um, I consulted for a little bit and finally I decided to go all in on 2 PM and it's been uh, almost, almost three and a half, four years now. And I, I'm loving every minute of it. That's awesome. And um, for listeners who might not be familiar with, the 2 p.m. newsletter. Let's let's break that down a little bit. Um, so this is a email newsletter. Uh, it's it's a freemium model, right? Like you have a, a free subscription and you have some premium content that you can pay for. Do I have that right? Yes, yes. So uh, you know, I started the letter because I wanted a place to go where we could just focus on our industry without any distractions. Keep in mind, this letter came about when. Every publication under the sun found a way to talk about politics, whether whether it's Mashable or Recode or whatever. They found a way to talk about the campaign, and I just wanted a place to go where, like, you only focused on on the issue at hand, how to understand the industries that we are in, and how to be able to better operate on that on that intelligence. And so it started for a group of a, a couple dozen uh, colleagues, and obviously it expanded and. Uh, the, the letter itself fully monetized at the beginning of 2018, and it's it's been no looking back ever since. Um, it's uh, uh, to, to be clear, it's the, the, the structure of the business is threefold. We have paid subscription, we have a consulting arm, and then we invest in direct to consumer brands uh, with some of our cash flows. Got it. Interesting. And the primary topic in the newsletter is. All things uh, direct to consumer native brands is that? Well, I would say it's a little bit broader than that. It's uh, it's e-commerce in general, but it's a combination of uh, digital publishing, data branding, and and traditional commerce. Uh, my belief is that you won't understand one vertical 
uh, unless you understand how they all interact together. And the executives that understand how all of these verticals are interacting with one another are the best prepared to operate in this uh, ever-evolving space. Awesome. And, and so, like, what's the profile of the ideal uh, subscriber? Sure. So here's a great test that I, I, I do maybe once every six to eight weeks. I open the list to come to my events. We, I host a dinner. Uh, it's fully paid for by, by myself and Dory's uh, a, a sponsor partner. And uh, it's first come, first serve. We usually host 24 people at a round table. An amazing dinner. Always amazing. Always an amazing time. Um, everyone that shows up is always director slash VP level and above. So uh, I don't dig through to figure out how many executives I have in the executive membership. But what I'm finding is that it heavily skews in that direction. These are people that are actually making the decisions, actually influencing the products and the positioning. And I like that that's where the focus is. And I'm hoping to never have to expand beyond that. Got it, got it. And Scott mentioned uh, that, that both he and I are uh, executive members. Um, and so sort of my notion for the kind of content you publish, and this will be a good test. You can tell me if I'm, I'm wildly off base or if I have it, is, is you really have sort of three kinds of content that I've found useful. Um, you do these member briefs, which are kind of uh, new, uh, news curation. And I think, you know, they, seem, they tend to come a couple times a week. Um, you write a bunch of original content in your own sort of POVs, which are these uh, sort of weekly reports. Um, and then you also have this executive library, which are these sort of really uh, useful um, lists, like the, the digital native vertical brand power lists or lists of all the investors in the space or agencies in the space, stuff like that. Do, do I... Do I have the sort of content types roughly right? You do. And uh, one of the last components that I've added in the last several weeks is uh, a member research series where I, I will pit two companies against one another and, and explain, ex excuse me, explain how these companies are, which company is better positioned to take the market. So the first one was StockX versus GOAT. Uh, that that research uh, document actually influenced a an upcoming investment round. That's all I'll say about that. Um, and the the most recent one was Peloton versus Tonal. Uh, Peloton's obviously the uh, on demand cycling hardware slash platform, and Tonal is the functional fitness mirror slash uh, digital weight. Uh, apparatus that you that you attach to your wall and so i explain uh based on both empirical data and uh, some anecdotal evidence which which company i feel like can take the majority of the market moving forward and i think that's been really interesting for my executive members awesome and then i if i have it right your last um uh weekly report the topic was uh direct to consumer playbook is a trap Yes. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, what what your POV was there. Yes. So one of the one of the most frequent questions that I get is uh, from investors that ask me to help build a playbook for direct to consumer brands. What to do in this situation? Who? Which agencies to go with? Uh, choose a copywriter. Uh, you know, key terms that you want for SEO, depending on the industry, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, the notion of that of that particular report is that any company that's been successful in the D2C space, space, whether that's achieving unicorn status or below or right below it, or or even exiting, got there by being antithetical to what was written before them. So instead of following what someone else is, what another business is doing, write, write your own path if that's really what you want, if that exit is really what you want to achieve. Uh, that's, that's the basis of the report. Got it. So, so uh, like essentially, like there is no playbook, or at least there's, there, uh, there's not one playbook that works for, for uh, multiple play, uh, brands. Correct. Everything that Harry's did, uh, was 
was was antithetical to what was going on in the market at that time. If you remember, uh, them going through Target was scoffed. You know, thought you know we thought that you were supposed to be a direct consumer brand. Why are you giving up wholesale? Why are you giving up margin for wholesale? Or or they opened their pop up shop in New York, their their barber shop. Why would you go into retail? That's a that's a poor investment. Why not just invest in ads? Um, so on and so forth. There, there, there are five examples that I mentioned in that document. And one thing is clear, they, they achieved a unique outcome because they were a unique company that was well run by their two founders. Cool. Um, so, so it sounds like the playbook is rip up the playbook. That's, that's, that's <laughs> exactly right. If you're going to be a disruptor, be a disruptor. You can't follow a playbook. Yeah. Correct. Correct. I'm actually going to put someone on the spot. There's a quote. There's a quote in the actual uh, report, and it says, "I'm bearish. It's hard. Only the disruptors will survive." Will survive. And it says, "Anonymous founder." That was actually a quote by Kevin Lavelle, who co-founded Mizzen and Main with me, and he made a good point. Uh, the whole spirit of the document itself was to remind founders that they have to continue disrupting if they want to succeed. They can't follow what everyone else is doing and expect a unique outcome. Very cool. Let's um, so so that's good. Let's stay kind of at this thirty thousand foot level. Um, you know, the timing of the show here uh, is is really good because you mentioned Harry's and they just were acquired for for I think this is a record for for one of these digitally native vertical brands at one point four billion by the folks that operate Schick. Um, and, uh, and then we just talked about uh, even since I I kind of put our little script together, we had the away investment. Um, do you feel like? Taking the playbook piece aside, do you feel like we're we're kind of super early in this space, or is like this one point four billion dollar sale almost like a sign that we're kind of towards the end game? Oh, I definitely think that we're early. Uh, you know, I was talking to Alex at Lightspeed earlier today, and uh, one thing that he added was that the, you know there will be more, there will be more stories like what we've seen from Harry's in a way. Uh, it's just a matter of time, and companies are finding out. Uh, what it takes, and they're they're finding their stride, and, and they're moving towards um, profitability a lot earlier. And omni-channel operation, omni-channel operational success uh, earlier, and it's it's paying dividends. It seems like invest. You know, all, these exits uh, typically actually you know get more and more investors piling in. Is is that kind of what you're seeing? Is the investor interest is still on the rise? Uh, it's still on the rise. However. Uh, I tend to be biased. I, I, I believe that companies should take as little money as possible. Um, so hopefully these companies are being savvy about who you know, they invite to their cap table. Yeah, but if, um, if the ones that are scaling up are having to do omni-channel and break the playbook and you, know, you mentioned like opening a barbershop, that all that just kind of feels like the need to raise more capital. How do you, how do you reconcile those two things? That's a good question. I mean, listen, uh, going back to our days at Mizzen, uh, Mizzen is in over 700 stores right now, uh, not even including uh, the Nordstrom deal. So that's 700 plus independent retailers around the country. Uh, we did that because we were hoping for more cash flow and it worked out well. Um, the team there did a successful job well beyond my time there, digging into that model and really developing strong relationships with these retailers. Uh, sometimes these operations are less capital intensive than you would think. Uh, it will all depend on the demand for the product and, and the hope that the product, uh, uh, the sell of the product will, will, uh, will, will pay off. Um, that's, that's what I'm seeing from a lot of the companies. I mean, from all reports, Harry's was profitable. Um, and for, I'm, I'm hearing that a, that a way was profitable uh, or, or very, very close. Yeah. Cool. The, um, uh, this is kind of an aside, but it kind of came to me that you've probably got a really nice portfolio of these things. Have you ever thought of starting uh, an angel list where people could invest alongside of you? Uh, no, I haven't. I, 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 I'm, listen, I'm still figuring out how to build a strong media company in 2 p.m. And until I understand the ins and outs of 
of consistency over time. I, I can't go all in on the investment side like I would want to, um, but it's an interesting idea. The problem is the more the, the more opinions that you have at that stage of growth from investors, the more viewpoints, so on and so forth. I think the more convoluted you're, you're going to be as a founder. Uh, not to digress too much, but one of the more, one of the more bullheaded founders that I know is is Ben Whitty of, of Recess. You can't tell that kid anything. He really believes what he believes, and it's paying dividends for him. So my fear with getting a lot of investors involved early on is that the goal often for early stage investors is to, uh, uh, I, I guess, implore some influence on the strategy or the model. And uh, you know, I tend to believe that you're supposed to listen to your gut and do your own thing and, 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 and operate with as few strings as possible. So I would actually say that bootstrapping to a certain point and then seeking investment once you have some social uh, traction uh, would, would be, or some social proof rather, would be would be the play cool well um uh, i'll sign jason would sign up for many many millions if you uh if you did the angel list thing so i'll just put him yeah. on the spot <laughs> yeah but you talk about annoying opinions that investors don't want mine would go right at the top of that list <laughs> <laughs> i was searching on google for shoe and you did not come up <laughs> yes please yeah. why uh, are you not on wechat yet um <laughs> Exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm actually at the other end of, of uh, that, that chain. Like I'm always getting the call because my client, you know, just got some goofy request from their investor. So um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I have great, great empathy for the, uh, the management team in that regard. Um, but uh, going back to kind of the macro trend, the interesting you know, thing is, uh, you you mentioned we're kind of in the first inning on these DMVBs. Uh, you know, it does feel like they've gotten a lot of buzz and they get a lot of mind share in our space, and a lot of people are talking about them. Um, and it 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 seems like the number of entrants has really ballooned. It wasn't that long ago that you know there was you know you could name all all of the these digitally native brands, and there were you know probably less than ten. Um, and I I mentioned you you have a these uh, executive databases on your site, your, your power ranking for digital native brands has a 316 <laughs> companies on it. Um, is like, what's your, what's your POV? Like, can the market support 316 companies and can they all have a great exit? And is it going to, you know, jump to thousands or, you know, is there going to be a, a reckoning? There will certainly be a reckoning. Um, I think I've made it clear. I'm not a D2C fanboy. I'm actually quite bearish. Uh, I'm very bullish on the companies that have it figured out. So I agree with you that the volume will go up. I personally think that the volume is ridiculous, but it's really easy to raise $3.5 million out of the gate right now. You know, especially if you went to Wharton or one of those schools and you just have like that, that direct to consumer sort of uh, prestige that those schools offer at this point. Um, it's too easy. And I don't think that the companies that have raised money easily are the ones that are most likely to succeed. So yes, there will be a reckoning and it will be sad, but I do think that building a direct-to-consumer brand, a digitally native brand is the best way to launch a company to this day, um, in this day and age. Uh, interesting. Yeah. I, uh, I want to drill down in that a little bit more, but, um, uh, I, I do think it's funny, like you, you, know, you mentioned earlier that like the companies that are looking for a playbook to simply follow are probably wrong. And, uh, um, I tend to agree with you. I like, get the moment there's like this, this specific buzz that does have a seemingly a playbook attached to it. And, and it, you know, it, uh, we haven't seen a lot of phenomenal exits from that playbook yet, but that's the whole, like, uh, <laughs> warden, a uh, student hires red antler, raises $3.5 million, spends it all on a branding kit, uh, invests in some huge, huge CAC. And like, it, it, it does seem like there's this sort of traditional play that, that, you know, you're, you're starting to see a bunch of, of, uh, brands follow. And it, it it's interesting because there's not necessarily a lot of evidence that 
that there's a strong exit at the end of that funnel. I, I can't agree with you more. Uh, it's, uh, it's frustrating for me, uh, partly because we had such a hard time raising money ourselves. Uh, I don't think that either of us were a pattern match at the time for that type of uh, growth capital. But that, that, that point aside, um, you know, whenever there's ease and a low barrier to entry, you're going to have hundreds, if not thousands of competitors. Uh, I think that those competitors will fall to the wayside, especially as Facebook continues to hold tight their, their inventory of ads that they'll sell. Uh, that means that that cost is going to continue rising and it's going to wash a lot of these brands out. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's true. Yeah. So uh, you, you bring up the Facebook uh, CAC tactic and it's funny, you know, um, a significant number of, of the well-known DMVBs have now shown up on Shark Tank. Um, and I, I, I admit to having a fascination with the show. We've had a bunch of guests on the, sh- on the show that, that are, are DMVBs um, that had a Shark Tank experience. Um, and they're all, there's a number of wisdoms that the Shark Tank investors share, some of which I like wildly disagree with. Um, but one, one that comes up a bunch on that show is they're really negative on companies who like, have primarily grown through Facebook marketing. Um, and you know, there's a, there's like a strong perception that there's, there's not like that, that customer acquisition through Facebook isn't particularly scalable for these brands that there's, you know, a small amount of, of, uh, audience that you can buy really cost effectively, but it starts getting really expensive really fast. And I, they do tend to agree with that. So it is, it is funny to see, uh, some of these brands with the over-dependence on, on a couple of these digital marketing tactics. Absolutely. And to that point, uh, you know, I, I, I veer the other way. I believe that the brands that have the best organic audiences are the ones that have the best long-term opportunity to succeed. Um, and to that point, ironically, and I said this at a recent speech in San Francisco, um, the companies that are the most likely to have successful direct-to-consumer operations are existing media companies. Interesting. Uh, for example, uh, the best example right now is some is an example that that will probably be scoffed at, but um, Barstool Sports. Barstool will probably do forty million in e-commerce in two thousand nineteen. That would put them in the top thousand of online retailers. Hmm. Cool. And uh, what are what is Barstool selling? I'm not familiar with that. Is it just they've kind of pulled in some affiliate sporting good stuff, or is no, it private no. label stuff? No, this is, uh, I mean, they, they have in their store, they have something along the lines of 1,700, 1,800 SKUs, uh, uh, apparel, knickknacks, so on and so forth. Uh, in addition, they have their uh, premium media subscription that I want to say did something like 15 million since launch in November 2018. Um, so they, they are moving, uh, in a recent article with Digiday, their CEO, uh, Erica Nardini mentioned, uh, to Digiday's editor in chief that she believes that they're, that they're going to be a $150 million a year company revenue wise by 2020. So a lot of that is commerce and, and commerce, successful commerce feeds into successful advertising. But that point aside, I've noticed that it's easier for companies like that to ramp up without customer acquisition costs, exorbitant customer acquisition costs, than it is the companies that are purely there to sell a product to a consumer. Yeah, because they already have the audience. It's just kind of kind of matching the products already to the pre-established CAC that they've they've had. Correct. They already have the audience. So when you so in that context, the reason why a Harry's is successful or in a way is successful or a Glossier is successful is because they already have the audience in their own way. Away has done a great job of curating an audience that sticks with them. So when they do launch a new product, they have tens of thousands of people in the CRM to sell to. Uh, Glossier's chief referral traffic is from Into the Gloss to this day. They just recently went on to buy Facebook ads in the last two or three months. They're they're a nine-figure annual revenue company at this point. So that's that's the common thread. And I, I'm surprised that more direct-to-consumer brands don't understand that. Yeah. 
the, uh, there's some of the media companies have tried this stuff and kind of failed miserably too. kind of the big guys they, they don't seem to get it right. What's, what, what's, uh, what's the top one in your mind? Because I, I feel like I'll, I'll let you answer first and then I'll, I'll give my explanation. Uh, so there was the guys that rebranded to this terrible brand. Um, was it the Tribune company? Uh, and then like in there, they tried to do some e-commerce stuff and it kind of got lost in the whole, the whole spiel. I get, you know, anything, anyone that kind of has newspapers inside of there has, has been kind of a challenge, I think. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the example that's always thrown out is probably Thrill List and Jack Threads. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually think that Jack Threads was succeeding. Uh, it was succeeding. Jason Ross is a Columbus guy. He, he used to advise me early on with Mizzen uh, when, when he sold to Thrill List. I, I actually think that it was that it, that the company became a conflict of interest. I think that 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 uh, that um, thrillist and that or, that media organization wanted to raise capital on a media valuation and on the commerce valuation. Obviously, back then there was a premium on a, on being a media valuation, and that affected that relationship. But 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 commerce was doing really well under that system. It's a shame that they shut it down and made it seem that that commerce was not succeeding. Hmm. Interesting. Cool. We'll, we'll be watching that closely. Um, let's pivot uh, a little bit. It wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't talk a little bit about Amazon. Um, you know, what what do you make of Amazon just generally? And and are they this unstoppable force? I would love to hear your just overall point of view. Uh, and then I'd love to kind of feather in how you think some of these brands should think about Amazon. Are they a friend, foe, or a friend of me? Ooh, that's a lot of questions. Uh, yes, they are an unstoppable force. Uh, they cannot be broken up. Uh, I can go into why if you want, but that's my, that's my summary. Uh, they are both friend and foe to brands. I think that brands have to be extraordinarily savvy when they decide to partner with Amazon. Otherwise, they will end up getting burnt. But as you saw this week with the recent development, um, Amazon is partnering with Adobe. Uh, it's, it's one of those Magento strikes back situations where that partnership will allow direct-to-consumer brands, early stage direct-to-consumer brands to build stores uh, on top of Amazon's logistics structure instead of having to build a store, test the market, and recruit a 3PL to issue the, to, to, to move the product. So yes, I, I think that Amazon's continuing to find ways to own the entire ecosystem. And as long as they make consumers happy, and they are, they are unstoppable. Cool. Uh, and then you kind of hinted at, you know, you have to be kind of prudent at this. Um, are, are you talking about Amazon, you know, kind of taking a bunch of data and coming out with a competing product? Uh, I've noticed they're, they're getting very aggressive in the mattress space, for example. Yes, that's exactly what I mean. Uh, there's always a chance that if you have a product that can, that can be easily knocked off, you're, you're going to pay for your participation. Yeah. So, so how do you, you know, when someone comes to you for advice on that, is the answer, you know, if it's easily knocked off, don't sell on Amazon or is it, you know, a more nuanced kind of a thing or how, how do you advise folks on it? It's, it's more nuanced. I, I tend to say that you should, you should have a category of product that you're comfortable selling on Amazon, whether it's your, your, your sale products or, or maybe like your cheaper, your cheaper SKUs. Things that do not cannibalize your existing audience on your own platform. Yeah, that totally makes sense, and I, I think we've heard from uh, uh, some of the some of the brands that are both direct to consumer and having a, a successful presence on Amazon, like a, a Tuft and Needle, that there's sort of a, a a product delineation strategy where there you know there's a, a range of SKUs that they'll only sell direct to consumers, and there, there's there's a range of SKUs that they'll make available on Amazon, and now there's even uh, Amazon exclusive SKUs. Correct. I think that's the way to do it. Yeah, no, that seems like that makes a lot of sense. And they, they at least make that strategy look pretty, uh, pretty robust. Um, I, I wanted to touch on one thing you mentioned, because we haven't covered it on the show yet. And we'll probably do a little deeper dive in a in an upcoming news show. Um, but you you referenced a, 
announcement that I think was yesterday that um, Magento, which is now owned by Adobe, is launching a new partnership with Amazon where essentially you can run a, uh, your own URL Magento site um, that it's pre-integrated to all the Amazon infrastructure. So you, you can leverage fulfillment by Amazon and Amazon payment. And it, it's essentially a way to have your own destination on the web um, for sellers that are, that are, have primarily been using, using Amazon. And it's uh, for, for old timers like Scott and I, um, and I don't want to lump into our, our age, Amazon actually offered a product like that themselves called Amazon web store that they discontinued in 2015. So this it's a, interesting play to see uh adobe facilitating that now um you know because one thing is it they also announced it's sitting on amazon web services um and you know that if if that ends up being the the hosting strategy for magento in the cloud that's that's going to be an interesting conundrum you know there there are a lot of retailers that aren't going to want to operate their their e-commerce site on adobe web services but uh but more, more to come on that. It's going to be interesting to watch. But I, I agree with you. I found that to be an interesting uh, news tidbit this week. Well, well, if Web's concerned about you know these uh, brands seeing just your Amazon sales, uh, presumably now Amazon can see everything you're shipping. And I don't think they would look inside of your AWS, you know, kind of you know pool and see what's going on inside there. But they'll definitely, you know, they can see. Wow, you sold you know eighty widgets a day on Amazon, and we're shipping three hundred. Hmm. You know, seems like seems like there's a pretty big direct business here. So, so if you're if you're worried about Amazon from just selling one couple widgets on there, you know, having them run your whole infrastructure, it'd be interesting to see how many people uh, adopt that. I'm anxious to see myself. Uh, it's going to be a, a test for a lot of companies, especially as they hope to streamline speed and availability from the logistics standpoint. Yeah, and it feels like they're shooting. Um, you know, it's a fire shot over Shopify's bow because Shopify's been mopping up. Hey, Web, have you done any research of like the platforms a lot of these companies choose? It just anecdotally, it feels like Shopify's got like eighty percent or something. Is, is that oh, kind without of, a doubt? Without yeah. a doubt, uh, I I did this one poll. Um, first of all, I, I've worked with several of these companies. Uh, I've I've consulted big commerce. I'm very close to the folks at Shopify. I have a lot of folks in my inner circle that love what Adobe is hoping to do with Magento. Um, the poll that I issued, I want to say it was six weeks ago. I said, if you're a direct consumer brand today, which platform do you use to launch on? Shopify, uh, Webflow, e-commerce, uh, BigCommerce, or Magento? It was 96% Shopify hmm. uh, with, with over 400 votes. Wow. Yeah. That I hadn't seen that that um skewed, but that that certainly echoes my own anecdotal impression is it just it feels like Shopify has totally won that space. So it makes sense that Magento slash Adobe has to do something big to try to disrupt that that pattern. Um on a side note, you know, Walmart has now like they've acquired some Digitative brands, but they've actually launched a couple of their own. They launched a a betting brand called All's Well Home. But this week they launched another one that's a premium bicycle brand called uh, Biathon. And what what I find fascinating about those two brands, you can't buy either of them on walmart.com. You can only buy them on their own websites. And these two brands, websites that are owned by Walmart and invented by Walmart are hosted on Shopify Plus. So Interesting. Despite the fact that Walmart owns, uh, you know, their own proprietary... Um, you know, multi-billion-dollar e-commerce platform. They, uh, they, they also are turning to Shopify for these, uh, these sort of, uh, you know, uh, nascent brands. So uh, it's definitely going to be an interesting space to watch. On a, on a slightly geeky note, um, the Adobe announcement seemed to imply that these stores could leverage fulfillment by Amazon, and that was particularly interesting to me. I'm, I'm eager to learn more because. Uh, there was an era when Amazon was encouraging you to use them for all your fulfillment, whether it was sold on Amazon or not. Um, but in the, in recent times, it feels like their Amazon's capacity has been so constrained that they've really like curtailed your ability to to ship goods from fulfillment by Amazon for orders that weren't collected on the platform. So so it's going to be interesting to see whether whether this is a pivot back or not. Um, but uh, 
putting that on the shelf for a second and turning back to the the broad uh, direct-to-consumer topic, um, one of the things that's frustrating to me as a consultant is the the D2C companies have so much buzz that I, I frequently like go to these digital days and you know all these sort of um, multi-consultant events. Um, and I hear a lot of my counterparts sort of talking about D2C being the future and everyone has to move to D2C and that's going to be the model that wins. Um, and you, you mentioned that you're, you're a little uh, bearish on, on a lot of these companies. I'm, uh, I'm equally bearish. And the thing that I keep noticing is, um, man, you talk about the incumbents and, and particularly in like the CPG space, like the Procter & Gamble and the Unilevers. Um, and there's this scary stat that none of them have invented any um, you know, billion dollar brands in the last 10 years, like no three comma companies. Um, and, you know, so you hear all these people talking about, oh, it's all these challenger brands. It's all these D2C brands that are eating the, the, the um, incumbents lunch. But none of these D2C brands have hit three commas yet either. Um, and, you know, per your point, they've all raised a, a ton of money from investors that, that need them to hit three commas in order to, uh, to have a successful exit. So they're in this weird space where, where they have to get to a billion dollars in sales at least. Um, and, and very few of any have, have achieved that. Um, and I've noticed there's a third category that seems wildly more successful than either of the other two. And this is, you know, uh, what I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts it's these new brands that are being launched by the retailer target in the last five years has launched five brands that have sold over a billion dollars. Um, and you know, uh, Kroger has some of the most successful brands in the world that they've created themselves. That's, it's somewhat interesting. Like the D 2 C brands are, are having to lean into whole wholesale distribution for CAC. Um, but the guys that are really winning are these retailers that are kind of falling some of the the components of the DDC playbook, but they're but they're leveraging the the huge audience that they already have in terms of shoppers that are coming to their stores. Have you you think I'm wrong there? Have you seen that as I, well? I, I don't think that you're wrong at all. I think it just goes back to the conversation that we were having earlier. Uh, they're they're having great success with these private label brands because they have an audience. Uh, a lot of these direct consumer brands have underestimated how difficult it is to develop an audience that you're not paying for. And that's where the advantage shifts. The leverage shifts back to the incumbents. Yeah, no, for sure. And then I, you know, I do think when you're a, a, a retailer and you have a portfolio of, of ways to monetize that same audience, it's a huge advantage. And in that way, I think some of these D2C native companies that are, a category like Glossier that, you know, like is doing real in a, well in an entire category seems like they have an intrinsic advantage over a lot of these D2C companies that still feel like single product companies. Correct. I, I would agree wholeheartedly. Uh, one of my most, one of my recent posts was about the importance of these direct-to-consumer brands that are essentially product companies converting or, or I guess graduating to becoming category brands. The only way that you'll succeed is if you are a category brand. Can you name can you name one of these direct one of these direct to consumer brands that stayed in one lane and sold one product all the way through? You can't. Bonobo started as pants. I know that's not the best example because they essentially sold for like every you know they they what they raised three hundred million and they sold for three hundred thirty. Yeah. Uh, so I never use Bonobos as an example, but but there are others. Even even uh, Dollar Shave Club became a, a category brand before they before they uh, before they exited. Harry's category they owned half of half of the Target aisle. Away is becoming a category brand. Obviously, Glossier is a category brand. Allbirds is shifting in that direction. Everlane is shifting in that direction. It's only a matter of time, and the companies that aren't prepared to do that are going to be left behind. Well, it's um. It's kind of interesting to kind of play the chessboard out. Um, and when you do, you know, what do you think happens to, to kind of retailers? And then um, we're, we're super bearish on malls here on the Jason and Scott show. Uh, so, so where do you see malls also in, in the whole kind of future? Yeah, I, I, have, a, I have a nuanced answer, nuanced answer to that. I, I'm not bearish on all malls. I'm bearish on the middle class. 
I'm bearish on the middle class in general. I believe that that subset of American consumer is struggling the most to maintain their, their place in society. And you're seeing it reflected in every, every retail marker. So as it relates to malls, the malls that appeal to the middle class are struggling. However, I've been to some wonderful tier A malls. In Columbus, you have Easton. You know, obviously Hudson Yards will have to be a success because New York needs it to be a success. But in Miami, you have Ball Harbor. You know, like there are numerous examples of of malls that cater to the upper middle class and higher that that are almost invulnerable. Uh, And then obviously there are the numerous bargain bin sellers that are appealing to, uh, you know, uh, economy buyers, for lack of a better phrase. But it's the middle class and all of those retailers that are getting eaten up at warp speed. Uh, that's where your bullishness comes from, or sorry, your bearishness comes from with respect to malls. That's yes, there are stores closing because they're closing uh, after after months and years of dwindling demand from the middle class. Yeah, no, uh, and we've actually kind of hit that topic several times on the show. Uh, uh, Casey Willenbaugh from uh, Deloitte talks a lot about this sort of great consumer bifurcation and that, you know, essentially is, is the same thing there, you know, there's increasingly affluent consumers and there's a, you know, a lot of successful businesses that cater to them. Uh, and there's unfortunately like, uh, increasingly financially distressed consumers and there's, there's businesses, you know, value-based businesses that are doing really well catering to them, but it's the, you know, people stuck in the uncomfortable middle that, you know, don't seem to have a great future. Um, I did have one other like sort of question about how some of these digital native brands play in traditional retail mall or otherwise uh, we started off the show talking about Harry's and some of the, uh, the clever things uh, that they've done. And I don't know if we mentioned on the podcast, but I know you mentioned it in your report. Um, There's a lot of speculation that Harry's was predominantly uh, sold through retail. So I think between J crew and target, like, you know, the, the numbers I've heard are like 80% of their, their revenue came from those, those retail stores versus their, their direct to consumer e-commerce presence. Um, and there's a, like from a customer acquisition standpoint, you, you could totally understand that. Like, you know, obviously that if, if they're selling those razors at wholesale to target and J crew, that would be hugely margin erosive. Um, but the, the interesting thing I have heard, and I'm curious if you've heard the same thing, um, is that because Harry's built a really desirable premium brand before they went to these retailers and they, they didn't use these retailers to build their brand. They used these retailers to amplify the brand that they already built, that they were actually able to negotiate terms with the retailers that were not traditional wholesale economic terms. Um, and so I, I've been led to believe that, that, uh, Harry's was much more profitable for Harry's in target than, uh, you know, traditional consumer good that Target would sell. I, I would I would agree with you. Uh, Target benefited greatly from Harry's uh, from Harry's involvement. Um, one of the one of the prime directives of Target management over the last few years is to get more millennials into the store, to get more younger affluent millennials to buy more products from Target, and it's certainly jump started uh, Target 2.0 with respect to their their continued revenue growth. Um, so yes, Harry's probably had some leverage that other companies didn't. Um, but, but when it comes down to it, uh, Harry's did exactly what they're supposed to do. They, they proved that they can compete, uh, in traditional retail boundaries or within traditional retail boundaries against the incumbents. The brand was strong enough to do that. And over that time, they, they proved that that was, that that was the, the, the case. There, 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 there have been a few companies. I won't name them unless you want me to. That have that have gone into Target and not succeeded. Uh, so, so Harry's, uh, you know, it should have been an early marker for a lot of analysts to see that because they were succeeding there, eventually they were going to exit in some way, shape, or form. Cool. So, um, this has been a great discussion. Um, and kind of, you know, very topical with the current time. Uh, and I know we're up against time. So it would love for you to whip out your crystal ball and look 10 years into the future. It's 2030 timeframe. 
what's what do you think retail and e-commerce look like at, at that point? Remind me of the year again. 2030. 2030. Woo. It's 2029, but I added one because it sounds more futuristic. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a pretty positive person, but may I, may I just get dark for a second? Yeah. Sure. Let's go dark. Um, okay. I, I, I think that as the years progress, the middle class will continue depleting. Um, so... A lot of the products and services that we see for, uh, you know, through Amazon, through Target, through Walmart, are all appealing to a higher consumer, a higher end consumer. Um, those products and services and retailers, both digital and physical, will continue to thrive over the next 10 years. But uh, I don't think that retail in general will thrive with it. And I, I, I do think that 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 we're going to see a retail induced recession in the next five to seven years that will probably stagger into that 10 year mark. Um, uh, I don't know if you agree with me, but that that's certainly the future that I'm preparing for. So the counter argument was we need to kind of solve the middle class problem to have a prosperous view of the world in 10 years is kind of your underlying thesis. 100 percent. And it's, it's very clear that no one cares about that right now. Well, I think we do. I, I care about three it. I, 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 three I, out of 300 million Americans. Sure. I, I, I guess what I'm saying is <laughs> the, the people that have the ability to make changes now don't seem to care enough about making changes now. Oh, those guys. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> is, is, if you look at the big history, if you kind of get out of our kind of current era and look at the whole spectrum of human existence like every time this happens it eventually gets solved like you just have a revolution you lop off the heads of all the rich guys and uh and uh you know you start to develop a middle class again for a little while so um <laughs> the problem with this the problem with this iteration of that story is by the time that can happen either we're going to be on another planet or the rich guys are going to be on another planet so it's going to be a lot harder to lop off an intergalactic head yeah, you are going dark. You are going dark. Uh, a happier follow-up question. In 2030, has Tiger surpassed Jack Nicholas for Masters? Oh, like gosh, man, you're putting me on the spot. I, I'm Listen, I've never rooted against Tiger. I won't root against him now. I, the kid, uh, he set his mind when he was seven years old that he was going to beat that man. You have to believe that he's going to follow through. Yeah, I, 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 for one, I hope he does it. I think it'd be fun to watch. Um, but Webb, uh, we are really pressing up on time. So if uh, folks want to uh, contact you, what's what's the best way to find you online? Uh, just W-E-B, Webb on Twitter, or you can email me at Webb, W-E-B, at the number two, PML.com. Awesome. I appreciate it. And uh, it has obviously happened again. We've used up our allotted time. Uh, so if folks have further questions or comments about today's show, uh, we encourage you to jump on our Facebook page or hit us up on Twitter. And Webb, we really appreciate you taking time out of your super busy schedule doing uh, 8,000 things. You make us look like slackers, <laughs> which is actually pretty easy to do. So we uh, really appreciate you have, being on the show. It's my honor, guys. Thank you for having me. Until next time, happy e-commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 